Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. Dear Brody, Ella, Ivy, and Noah, being your grandparents is one of the greatest joys of our lives. We love you so much. When each of you were born, we tried to come see you at least every other month for the first year of your life so that you would know us and begin to develop a relationship with us. We love that each of you are special in your own way, just the way God designed you. Brody, you've been created by God with a kind and loving heart. You're considerate of others and ready with a kind word or to help someone. Ella, God has created you with energy and the ability to focus. When you are concentrating on a task, nothing can distract you from it. Ivy, your love for singing songs about Jesus is a gift from God. Your heart seems happiest when you are singing the songs you learned at preschool. Noah, you've been created with a joyful spirit. You enjoy life to the fullest, and you're always ready to share your shining smile. We can't wait to see how God uses the way He has created each of you for His purposes in the world. As much as we love you and appreciate your uniqueness, and as much as your parents love you, God loves you infinitely more. That is why He sent His Son, Jesus, to give His life to pay for your sins and to purify your hearts. As you invite Jesus into your daily life, you will find that He is always with you and that He will always love you. Remember to call on Jesus when you're troubled, to invite your Heavenly Father to be with you every day and to include the Holy Spirit in your thoughts daily. When you make a mistake, Ask God to forgive you. Try to live by the principles in the Bible where God gives us instructions for daily life. If you can learn this at an early age, it will benefit you throughout your life. You will always have Jesus to guide you as you go through your joys and difficulties. In Proverbs, the Bible says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. How do you trust in God? Pray and ask Him to guide you, and then listen for His answer. You will hear the answer through your own reading of the Bible, from words of Christian friends, and from the Holy Spirit's guidance in your heart. Someday we pray that you will recognize Jesus as your Savior, and that you will ask Him to rule your life, to forgive you of your sins, and to guide you daily. We look forward to celebrating this day with you and to living together with you forever. With, with all, all our, our love, be Ma and Grandpa. Grandpa. 
so good to see you. Glad everybody's here today. Been uh, out in the discovery class this morning with some new families that have been attending our church and finding their way into uh, being a part of us, and that's been exciting. But I'm glad to be with you guys now and have a chance just to break into God's Word together. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Proverbs chapter 6. Appreciated the ladies reading that just a few minutes ago. And uh, as we get into this chapter this morning, we're going to see several things here that act as warnings to us again. And that seems to be a major theme of the book of Proverbs, especially in these first seven or eight chapters is that, hey, I want to warn you about some things. And we've said this at least once during this series, but it bears saying again and repeating because it's true. Uh, the, the school of hard knocks is a great teacher for us. And a lot of us have learned a lot of valuable lessons by going through hard things. And, and that school can teach us in pretty incredible and powerful ways. But if you can learn something from someone without having to go through the bumps and the bruises along the way, and you can find a way to miss out on the school of hard knocks, it can be even better. And so I think what Solomon is doing is he's writing these early chapters to his son as he's saying, hey, listen, I, I know I've made mistakes along the way. I know I've experienced some things along the way that have been hard. And I want you to hear from me about things that I've discovered that were not good so that you can avoid that same path. And so Solomon's writing some things here, and we find in this chapter several different warnings. The first that we see, and I'm not going to go back and read the chapter. We just heard it read to us a moment ago, uh, but I'll give you these warnings just kind of defined. The first one comes in verses one through five, and he teaches us not to be unwise with our money. In fact, he, he kind of talks about being careful not to extend an open line of credit to people and becoming a source of constant provision for someone. He even goes to the extent of saying, if you find yourself in this type of relationship, you need to go and, and spend sleepless nights trying to get out of that so that you can be back into a place that you don't have financial responsibility over someone who's just going to continually take advantage of that. The second warning we find out about is about being a sluggard, or rather not being a sluggard. He warns us and says, listen, there, is, uh, there are people in the world that are just going to do absolutely nothing, a little rest, a little folding of the hands, and the next thing you know, they find themselves in ruin. They think they're just going to take a little nap, but it ends up being something that dominates their life. And he actually encourages us, he goes, hey, just go and watch the ant. It just works. It does what it's supposed to do. Without having a king ruling over it, it just does its job. And so he actually says, go and watch the ant and, and think about that. And now here's what I would tell us this morning. Rest is really good. Rest is powerful. It's a tool that God has given to us. In fact, we have the Sabbath built into our weekly schedule in order to say there's a day that you should stop and cease from your striving and just rest in God and take joy and delight in him without working and without giving back. But rest ultimately leads us back into productivity. And the sluggard doesn't find anything that's productive. The sluggard ends up just being someone who does nothing all of the time, no drive, no ambition, no desire to contribute to society. In fact, they end up becoming a drain on society. And so Solomon says, hey, listen, be careful about that. That's not a good life for you to live. The third warning that we find in Proverbs chapter six is a warning not to stir up trouble for others, right? And he says, there are people who enjoy conflict. They love to stir things up and stir the pot and make a mess of things. And he says, they just love conflict. They plot ways to make life miserable for others. And it destroys community. It destroys fellowship. And so he warns us about that. Don't be one of those people. He warns us that sudden disaster overtakes people who stir up conflict in others' lives. So be cautious about that. Then the final warning that we come to in this chapter is a warning against adultery. And last week we talked 
in depth about this. And we said, you know, adultery is one of those things that long before it becomes a physical action, it starts in our hearts, it starts in our minds. Before it ever affects our hands and our feet, it begins in the places that are deep inside of us. And so he warns us against those adulterous relationships. He even tells his son that not to mess around with things like lust, like adultery, because we'll get burned. And he asks the question, can you scoop fire into your lap and not get burned? Can you walk across hot coals and not blister your feet? Because of course not. Those things are destructive. And if you mess around with adultery, and if you mess around with pornography, and if you mess around with lust, those are going to be things that are ultimately going to come back to bite you. They're going to burn you. They have harmful consequences. And so he warns us about that. But then couched right in the middle of these warnings is the section that I want us to pay attention to most this morning. And it's found in verses 16 through 19. And here's what Solomon writes as he's talking to his son. He says, there are six things that the Lord hates and seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. And it's interesting that as he starts this passage, he tells us about things that God hates. Uh, Because most of the time, I think that people, especially outside of the church, will go, wait a second, is God even allowed to hate things? Like, isn't God supposed to be a God of love, and he's just grace, and he's just all love all the time? Isn't that God? And the answer is yes, to some extent. God's defining attribute and characteristic is love. We're told in, uh, in, by John that God is love. Like he is made of love. And so when we think about him, we go, well, then how in the world can he hate something if he's love? And the answer to that question is that God hates the things that break his perfect design. God hates sin. He hates immorality. He hates the things that destroy what he created to be good and right. He hates things that that ruin relationship between other people. God wants us to live in harmony and in fellowship with each other, but sin breaks that down. So God's love draws us back into relationship with him. It's his love that takes us from a place where sin has broken our world and says, I want you to escape that brokenness and come back into a relationship that's pure and right and good and loving. And so he calls us into that. But once God tells us, hey, here are some things that that when I look at them in the world that's been broken because of sin, that I hate these things, they're detestable to me, then we have to ask ourselves if we're going to be the kind of people who hate what God hates. Are we going to be the kind of people that will look at the things that God says are out of place in our lives and in this world, and will we hate them? And so then as we define those things in our lives to go, well, in my own life, Are there things that God says he hates that exist in me? And if so, am I willing to join the Holy Spirit to let him be powerfully at work in my life to root those things out, to dig out whatever is there that is a mess and let the surgeon come in and perform surgery on me to pull out cancerous things? If God hates it and it's in my life, what am I willing to do about it? And so we look back and we ask this question then, and and if you've ever spent any time whatsoever in a relationship where you've lived with someone, you understand the things that they hate, right? So if you're married, you've lived with a spouse, you're like, I know what bugs my spouse. 
Uh, if you're a child living with your parents, you're like, I know what bothers my parents. And I will do that as often as I possibly can, right? Uh, if you're a parent, you're like, I know what things my kids do that drive me up a wall. Like, I know these things. If you have a roommate, you know what your roommate does that makes you crazy. And you know what makes them crazy. And some of us weaponize that against the people that we love, don't we? Like, we will take those things and go, I know this bothers you, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, because I kind of want to see you climb the wall and go crazy just a little bit. And so when we think about this and we go, all right, but if I know someone and I love someone and they've declared, man, I hate that. And I hate it when you do that. Man, it drives me nuts to see that happen in our home. Then if I really love someone, if I really love my spouse, if I really love my kids, then I'm going to do whatever it takes to avoid doing that. And so for God, when he tells us, hey, here's some things that I hate, we ask this same question. What am I willing to do to stop doing and participating in the things that God hates? So we ask the question, well, what does God hate? And he outlines them here for us. He says, there are six things God hates, seven that are detestable to him. And you're like, how does that math work? We'll talk about that in just a second. The first thing though that we see then is what God hates is haughty eyes. He hates being prideful or arrogant. Like that's what haughty means. It's not a word we use very often in our culture, but haughty just means prideful or arrogant. We're told about Jesus, that Jesus humbled himself and became a servant to us, that he left the glories of heaven to come to earth, to take on human flesh, to be made in the image of a servant, not considering equality with God, something to be grasped or strived for or used to his advantage, but he came to serve. And then before he calls us to serve. So he doesn't like pridefulness and arrogance. He's a servant. He wants us to be servants. Number two is a lying tongue, speaking falsehood knowingly and willingly with the intention to deceive others. God hates a lying tongue. When you think about this, Jesus said, Satan is the father of lies. And when he lies, he's speaking his native language. So here's what that means for us. Anytime we lie, we're speaking the language that Satan invented. Is it any wonder that God hates lying? When he says, that's a language that was created and invented by my adversary, by the one who initially rebelled against me. Number three, his hands that shed innocent blood. And when we think about this, we think about both actual murder and hate within our hearts without room for forgiveness. Last week, we talked about the idea that when Jesus talks about adultery in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you've heard it said that not to commit adultery, but I'm going to tell you, if you lust after anyone in your heart, you've committed adultery with them. And in the same way, Jesus takes this and he says, and you've heard it said that you shouldn't murder someone, but I'm going to tell you, if you hate someone in your heart, if there's no room for forgiveness in your heart, it's the same as if you killed them. Right? So Jesus takes this idea and goes, you don't have to be someone, if you're going, who I'm off the hook on that one, I've never killed anybody. Well, have you hated someone intensely? Do you hate someone who thinks differently than you? Do you hate someone who stands on the other side of the aisle than you? Do you hate someone who engages in a life that's different than you? What do you hate that there's no room for forgiveness or reconciliation? It bothers the heart of God, and he sees that as shedding innocent blood. Number four is a heart that devises wicked schemes. God doesn't want us planning evil against others for the benefit or personal benefit or of other misguided objectives. When I think about this, when I think about um, someone who would plot evil schemes or devise wicked schemes, I think a lot of times about like terrorism that people would sit and use brain power and resources to think up ways that I can hurt a majority of people or a, or a vast swath of people at one time. 
That I can go, I just want to be someone who's going to bring destruction on people. God goes, I hate when people devise wicked schemes in their heart. Number five, feet that are quick to rush into evil. This really means that you have no resistance to sin when temptation comes against you. And, and you typically know the things that you're tempted by. You typically know the things that cause you to stray into sinful activity or behavior. He goes, if you have no propensity to resist temptation, but you have feet that are quick to rush into evil, then that's going to be destructive for you in your life. I want you to be someone who's going to desire me more than you desire sin. That your love for God eclipses your love for the things that God detests. He goes, and I want you to be able to put the brakes on instead of running wholeheartedly into those sinful things. Number six is a false witness who pours out lies. This ties back in with the lying tongue, right? When you think about a lying tongue and a false witness who pours out lies, this is why it says that there are six things that God hates and seven that are detestable to him. There are seven things in the list, but two of them revolve around lying. Like, I don't want you to be someone who lies towards someone else, and I don't want you to be someone who bears a false witness or pours out lies as a false witness. In other words, don't be somebody who, when you're brought to court, that you're going to testify in a way that's going to be false against someone that could cause them punishment, being jailed, being killed for, for what they've done or what you've said that they've done. Even in your homes, how many times did I, as a sibling growing up, have something that I said falsely against my brother just because I wanted him to get in trouble instead of me to get in trouble? Maybe make up something that wasn't quite the truth or, no, I didn't do that, he did that. You know, like whatever it is that we might say, I'm bearing false witness against someone. And the goal is to get them in trouble so you avoid trouble. And God says, I hate that. And then number seven is a person who stirs up conflict in the community. God absolutely hates the destruction of unity, especially when it's planned, when it's strategic. Because I don't want you to be a person who stirs up conflict. Actually, that was the third warning that we talked about earlier. Not to be someone who stirs up conflict. If you go back and read verses 12 through 15, Solomon writes and says this, a troublemaker and a villain who goes about with corrupt mouth, who winks maliciously with his eye and signals with his feet and motions with his fingers, who plots evil with deceit in his heart. He stirs up conflict always. Therefore, disaster will overtake him in an instant and he will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. So here's what I hope you see as you look over these things. As you look at this list, what does God hate? What's detestable to God? God hates things that destroy relationship. God hates the things in our lives and in this world that destroy relationship. All of those things are relational, aren't they? When you go back and read that list, you're going to see it. Every single one is relationship. God hates the things that destroy our relationship. And we talk about this all the time, but God is a God of relationship. God exists eternally in relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's perfect Trinitarian unity in relationship in God. But then when God created the world, he placed Adam on the earth. And the only thing that he looked at after creating and said, it's not good was Adam being alone because it's not good. It is not good in all the things that I've created and all the goodness that exists that Adam is alone. He needs someone like him. And so God creates Eve and he unites Adam and Eve. And we see that, and it's this perfect relationship. He even says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She is like me. 
Like there's this design that's intended for the relationship. But when we find what happens with Adam and Eve, it doesn't take very long into the story of God's creation to find that the serpent tempts Eve and Adam's there with her and they both engage in eating this fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil that God had told them, the one command that I have for you is not to eat that fruit. As soon as they do that and engage in that, what's the next thing we see relationally with Adam and Eve? He throws her under the bus. God shows up in the cool of the day, walks in the garden, says, hey, where are you guys? And Adam goes, oh man, we were hiding because we were naked, we were ashamed. God goes, who told you you were naked? And he goes, well, this woman that you put her with me, she gave me some fruit to eat, right? And it's just throwing her under the bus immediately. Relationship breaks down as soon as sin enters into the picture. And God hates things that destroy relationship. And then by the time you move on into the story, just one generation in with Adam and Eve's first children, Cain and Abel, you might think that it would take a long time for the detestable sins that God hates to find their way all the way into humanity, but it doesn't. It it takes two children being born. And what you find in the story of Cain and Abel, they go to offer sacrifices to God and God accepts Abel's sacrifice, but he rejects Cain's. I think what that really means is that it's it's more about the heart by which they gave the sacrifice than about the sacrifice itself. God wasn't upset that Cain gave one type of sacrifice and Abel gave another type of sacrifice. It was about their heart. And we see that when God shows up to Cain and he, he tells him about these things. He, Cain demonstrates pride and arrogance. There's haughty eyes, right? This pride and arrogance. God says, hey, why are you so downcast? Because I rejected your offering. And instead of Cain repenting and coming back to a place of going, No, you're right. I'm in the wrong here. I did it with the wrong heart. He shows arrogance and pride and he hangs his head low and he doesn't change his posture toward God. He becomes angry and downcast. And that leads him to feet that are quick to rush into evil because God warns Cain. Cain, listen, I want you to know something. Sin is crouching at your door and it's desiring to destroy you. Resist it. And instead of resisting, what does Cain do? He goes and he gets his brother and he says, I got a plan. Let's go do something. And in his heart, this is where we find the third thing. He has a heart that devises wicked schemes. Cain plans to take his brother out into a field away from their family and he intends to kill him. And that's exactly what he does. He leads him away from the community and he murders his brother. So he's got hands that shed innocent blood. Cain kills Abel in cold blood and leaves his lifeless body laying in a field. Now he's gotten to a point where he's destroyed relationship with his brother and now with his family. Then you're going to see Cain move into the sixth stage of this or the fifth stage of this. There's a lying tongue. God comes to Cain again after warning him. Sin is crouching at your door, wants to devour you. You've got to resist it. He comes to Cain again. He goes, hey, Cain, where's your brother? And what's Cain's answer? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? You go find him. And God goes, oh, I already found him. His blood is crying out to me from the ground. And so Cain lies. I don't know where my brother is. The lying tongue filters in. Then we get the last thing that God hates, a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Cain destroyed unity through murder. He broke his family apart. And then because of his sin, God has to send him away in exile. So more relationships are destroyed. He's no longer with his family. He's no longer around the people that raised him and care for him. He's got to be off on his own and he's going to wander for the rest of his life. It destroys unity, and it brings conflict. 
And so we get this story and we look at all of it and we go, God hates sin. He hates wickedness. And yet only one generation into the human story, we find all of the things that God hates. So is it really all that difficult to think that in our lives, it's very possible that the things that God hates can find their way into our lives? That we have to constantly be on guard about these things so that we can find help from our God. Because God hates sin and wickedness. He's holy. Therefore, sin has no place in his presence. But here's what I'm so thankful for about, about God. He doesn't leave us to die in our sins. He sends his Savior to us. He sends his Son. He goes, I'm going to make a way to clean this up, to remove your stain, to remove your guilt, to remove the shame, to take these things that I hate away from you. And I'm going to cover that with the blood of my son, Jesus. And so when we get to Romans 6, 1 through 14, we see Paul talking about this very idea of saying, there are some things that God wants to do in our lives to rid us of sin. And so I want to just read this passage to you. Verse one says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? I believe Paul's responding to a question that the Romans had brought up earlier to go, well, Paul, shouldn't we just be able to sin and sin and sin? And the more we sin and the more that God has opportunity to pour out grace on us, doesn't it just make God look all that much greater if he has more and more opportunity to pour out grace? And Paul's going, no, that's not how this works. We should stop sinning. We've died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. What Jesus has given us in his death and burial and resurrection is an invitation into new life. He's going, I want you to be changed completely. I want you to, to die to that old way of living. I want you to put sin to death in your life. I want you to put it on the cross the same way that Jesus was placed on the cross. And you've got to nail sin to the cross with Jesus. Not to keep living in it, but to let it die there with him. That's why Jesus came, to remove that sin, to remove the scorn, to remove the shame, to put it on the cross with him so it would die and you could live to a new life. Sin is no longer our master. Jesus is. So we find these ways to live the Jesus life and to say no to sin. God's given us the power to do that if we work with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Puritan author John Owen wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. And in it, he said, the power of sin is weakened little by little so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. That is so that sin should not be our master and control us as before. This includes not only fleshly desires, but those of mind and the will, which are in opposition to God. We've died to sin so that we can be set free from it. Death leads to freedom. And so we're to put sin to death. Then you go to verse eight. He says, now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. 
Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself as an instrument of righteousness to him. For sin shall no longer be your master because you're no longer under the law, but under grace. And I love this. Paul says, listen, I want you to know and understand that you should not offer any part of your life as an instrument of wickedness. And here's how I think about that. Don't let evil have a role in your physical life. Don't use your hands, your feet, your eyes, your mouth. Don't use anything physical that would glorify or objectify sin and evil. Don't let evil invade your spiritual life. Put a guard up so that you guard your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit through the word of God. That there's nothing evil that comes from you spiritually. And don't let evil have space to operate in your relationships. No part of your life in God should harbor sin and evil and wickedness. He says, instead, offer your body as a tool of righteousness. Give yourself over to God in that way. Put sin to death and live to God. So here's the truth. Every one of us gets the same warning that Cain got. Watch out. Be careful. Sin is crouching at your door. Sin is right there, desiring for you to follow it and to do what it says. So we have to ask the question of ourselves. Will we hate the things that God hates? Will we put those things to death? And as we think about that, the last question that I want us to ask this morning is, are we willing to go to war against our sins? How much effort will you put in to go to war against your sin? I'm going to ask our band to come back up. We're going to do one last song this morning, and we're going to finalize our time together just by singing together. But here's the last couple of questions that I want to ask you in regard to this. Do we go to war against your sin? Does your heart break over the things that God hates? Do you call good what God calls evil? And will you work to preserve relationship in healthy ways? Because you need to remember that God hates the things that destroy relationship. So will you be the kind of person who says, I'm going to fight for relationship. I'm going to put sin to death because it dishonors God. I want to nail it to the cross because that's where it belongs. Jesus has taken my place. Jesus has offered me freedom that leads to life so that I can say no to sin and say yes to following him. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus today, the starting point for you is just saying yes to Jesus, that you want to know him and walk in relationship with him, that you want to find out more about what it means to be his disciple that you want to understand how his death can lead to you putting your sin to death, that you accept his forgiveness and receive that, and that you understand his grace for you. And so if you don't know Jesus today, this is the perfect opportunity for you to respond to him and say, I want a relationship with Jesus that will change my life forever. You can pray right where you are to receive Christ into your life. And just commit your life to him and say, Jesus, I, I, I don't know everything about you right now, but I want to move into relationship with you. I want your forgiveness over me. I want to walk in a different way. And I want to be changed by you over time. So would you help me put sin to death in my life? 
You can also find the connection card in the chairs right around you and check the box on the back of the connection card that says, I want to know more about a relationship with Jesus. Fill that out and give it to one of our team. We'd love to have a deeper level conversation with you about this faith that God's calling you into. He wants to know you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to walk with you. Others of you who do know Jesus, but you've not taken seriously the call to put sin to death. This just needs to be a wake-up call for you today to say sin is crouching at your door and there are things that are happening in your life that God hates that are detestable to him. And through the power of his spirit, he wants to help you dig those things out. So will you work with him to do that? Will you go to war against your sin? Will you put to death the things that God calls evil and wicked? Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.